Thank you, Jason and Juan Pablo and everyone who has led worship today and shared their story. Um, I'm Hannah again. If you talk about me, you can say she or her. And if you are the praying kind, I would invite you to pray with me. God of grace, mercy, and power. God of all of us. God who reaches in and reaches out. God, who in Jesus found us at the table and sent us out into the harvest. Meet us here in this moment today. In whatever is ailing us, in whatever is lifting us up, in our sorrows, in our joys, in our questions, in our doubts. Help us know how truly we are beloved, how truly the world is beloved and made one and how we might be transformed by you. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God. Amen. So my mom's whole family is uh, Irish and from South Boston. So if any of you have ever met somebody from Southie before, uh, you know that there's a very particular culture, very particular way of being, very particular way of hanging out, of being around. It is a community that is um, incredibly intimate and close, where people know things about one another, know everything about one another, um, and also one that can be pretty insular and everything from the accent to everything else that you do, right? Um, and I love my family, and I love that place, but I, I think there's something hard about it, too. Um, I lived in Boston for a couple of years, and, and one of the things that I often say to folks about that kind of community that is intense but also closed is that one of the things you'll notice if you're in Boston instead of Chicago is that if you ever ask someone for directions... They, on, they give directions that only make sense if you've already lived there your whole life, right? So you say, how do I get to the brick building that I'm going to? And they'll say, turn at the McDonald's that used to be a Dunkin', right? And you're like, honey, I don't know about the McDonald's that used to be a Dunkin'. I don't live here. <laughs> um, and it's sort of adorable, right? It's like not meanly intended. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not supposed to be unuseful to you. But it's the attitude as if there can be no one who has a different experience than me. <laughs> there can be no one who didn't grow up here and doesn't know this place. And it can feel a little alienating, right? I felt a little on the outside when I lived in Boston. I felt a little not quite there all the time. And I, I had the same feeling usually um, when I met Christians before I was one. So for those of you who don't know my story, I grew up in a non-religious family. Both of my parents were raised Christian, but then had stopped uh, that for lots of good reasons before I was born. So I was raised with some strong values, but no particular faith tradition, and converted when I was 16. Before that time, though, uh, I lived in the United States for several years, so I did meet a lot of Christians. And frequently, I would get that same sense that people were uh, intensely in a community that they loved, right? But that it was very, very hard for them to imagine what not being in that community felt like and looked like. 
and very hard for them to imagine that goodness and greatness and other kinds of experiences could come from outside their community. I remember this particularly in the one or two folks I knew um, who through their church or their youth program or whatever really thought of evangelism as part of what they were called to do in the world. Um, and one of the things I just remember being utterly befuddled by as a teenager is that some of those folks would come up to me or people on the street, other folks in our community, and be like, did you know what John 3.16 says, right? It says that you are saved. And I would think to myself, do they know that I don't know what John is and that I don't care what he says? <laughs> like, do, like do, they, do they understand, right, that, like, I don't care about what the Bible directs me to do. So why would telling me about what the Bible directs me to do change what I do? I didn't feel mad about it, but I always felt very confused about it, right? Like, why, why are they coming at me with this? Why are they coming at me with this argument? Uh, the uncharitable version, which we know we have experienced in some is that their community has gotten so insular, they actually don't care about the experience of people who are not Christian. They only care about being right, right? Being on top. The more charitable one is that there are people who genuinely just haven't experienced a lot of people who don't share their community, you know? Like, they're just, they're kind, good, merciful, graceful people walking around out there who almost every other friend they have grew up in the same kind of church they did, and so it becomes really hard to imagine what life looks like, what a mind feels like, what a heart feels like, if those aren't the shaping experiences of your existence. And I think that makes for um, not great discipleship, in one case. It makes it hard to get to know Jesus, because it turns out that God made all of the people, not just some of them, it turns out that God made all of the communities, right? All of the world, all of the ways of being. And so closing yourself off from knowing them, from knowing the creativity and the art and the provocation and the lessons that come out of all of these other communities is cutting yourself off from big parts of who God is, of what goodness and joy and light look like. So I think it's not great for personal growth or discipleship. I think it's not who God calls us to be. I think it's also particularly really, 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 really bad for evangelism, <laughs> for reaching out to others and trying to say to them, I think that this way of life, this way of being, this religion might have something for you. I think it puts you um, not in a position to be able to do that very well. Now, you might have the question, why would that be a goal at all, <laughs> right? Isn't evangelism bad? <laughs> Doesn't it hurt people? Isn't it mostly destructive? And my friends, you would have a point, right? Uh, many, many versions of evangelism have gone horribly wrong and are terrible and we do not like them, right? Many versions of evangelism have simply been other ways of being the empire, other ways of being a colonist, um, other ways of being simply self-righteous and wanted to tell other people that they suck or that you know better than them um, or that they are hurt or lost or barren without you, which is just another form of, a, of an abusive relationship, right? Um, if what evangelism looks like is telling people that they are destroyed if they don't take what you have to offer, there is no way that that leads to either a healthy faith 
or a healthy relationship or a healthy community. And that's a lot of what evangelism has looked like in our moment, in our time, in our place, and in many moments and many times and many places. And then there's the, um, the big question about evangelism. And if we can go to 35 through 38 of the Gospel of Matthew, um, whether what people have been evangelizing is good news or not <laughs> is a big question to me, right? When it talks about what Jesus did from Luke 4, when Jesus makes his first public proclamation of what he's doing, of what his life is about, right? I proclaim the breaking of chains, the liberty of the oppressed. What, what it says is that Jesus has good news, that the kingdom is real and that the kingdom has arrived. And what the kingdom is is a vision of a way of living that is for all of us, that is mercy and justice and hope and love between and among all of us. And if what people are hearing instead is bad news, bad news that they're worthless, bad news that community is only possible if you become exactly like me, that I cannot be in unity with you unless you agree with me on all things, that I cannot have love with you unless you adopt all of my belief propositions about the world. It can't possibly be evangelism because what evangelism means is good news. And if what people are receiving is awful, awful news, you're doing something else, doing something else. And yet, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I don't want to throw out any notion that we have something to share, that we have something to offer, that we have something that transforms and that it might be worth telling people about it because that's what happened to me, right? Because that's what happened to me. Um, I received an incredibly healthy, life-giving, and life-affirming and love-affirming version of what evangelism can be, um, which is that I went to a church for the first time. Who knows if my parents regret this or not, but they basically wanted us to go to church for one year to like, because they wanted their teen kids to have choices about religion that they had not been given, right? So I went to church for one year. We were going to go through confirmation. Part of confirmation class was that you like visited a mosque and visited a Presbyterian church and visited a Buddhist temple and you like talked about all the things. And I think they sort of thought like world religions 101, but handled on Sunday mornings. And then they'll be, you know, we'll have fully baked them. Great. Kids can go into the world. Um, but I had many, 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 many questions <laughs> about what I was seeing and experiencing. I had questions about the words of the hymns. I had questions about the Lord's Prayer. I had questions about why the youth group went to homeless shelters. I had questions about why my heart felt warm and full and jumped when I heard stories about things that Jesus had done. And so I started going to people with my questions and the way that they were received, I think, is a beautiful form of what evangelism can look like, which is that my pastor just would be honest with me and talk to me about his own doubts, about how it would be totally okay. The thing I appreciated the most about my conversations with him and my confirmation class is that um, it was said to us every single time 
that saying no was an option and that we would be fully loved if we chose to pursue that option, right? That if we said, no, this isn't for me, no, I'm not a Christian, no, I'm not about this, they would be just as proud of us for having declared ourselves in the world, for having found our spiritual orientation in the world as if it went the other way. And so he made this space for me to find a thing. And in that space that he made, in that honesty that he shared, in that true love that he had for me and that that community had for me, I found something that transformed my life forever. And that's the part where I don't want to give up on telling people what I found because I see it happening at Urban Village every day. That people will come to me in tears and say, I didn't know that it could be like this, right? I always, I always felt a love of God or some presence and power in the universe, and I always was the questioning person that I am or the gay person that I am or the whatever person that I am, and I never knew you could actually be both of those at once in a community that would love you. I didn't know that was possible. And so it becomes actually... Um, desperately needed to me. When I talk to folks in our neighborhood, when I talk to folks in our city, when I talk to folks in this country, it becomes desperately needed to me. Because of the story that is out there about who God is, because of the story that is out there about who people are, because of the story that Juan Pablo was telling you, right, he was so convinced of, he shared it with his own kids <laughs> until he knew it to be different in his heart and in his soul that it actually is a spiritual obligation to make sure that people know that there is another option and another story. And that's how I define healthy evangelism, is um, not that you're making people do a thing or making people say yes to a thing, but that you create an environment where people know all of the options that are on their table. Do people know that this is an option? Once everybody knows that it's an option, I'll, I'll give up, right? I'll stop. <laughs> we don't need to do outreach or publicity anymore. But um, I think there are a lot of people who are in deep pain because they don't know that it's an option to love and worship and disciple themselves to Jesus and to be fully themselves. And I want to live in a world where everybody knows all of their options on the table and then makes their choice freely. And I want to support them in that and love them in that and learn from them in that. But that world only happens if we stop thinking about outreach as invitation and begin thinking about outreach as actually going out into where we are trying to reach and seeing what is there and listening as much as we talk. Listening as much as we talk. <laughs> and that's why we read Matthew today. Um, because I, I think we've gotten to a point, you know, 2,000 years you start to have some like things that you just kind of say over and over again and don't think about. You know, the Lord's Prayer might be one of them for some folks in this room, or like things you say about God, about who Jesus is. But let's go to Matthew 9, 9 to 12. Um, one of the things we just say over and over again is like, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, right? We say it whenever it comes up um, that someone wants us to exclude someone or leave someone out, that someone wants us to call some people less in the, in the identity of God than others. People will kind of say this as a phrase, but I think we often don't think about what it really meant, which was not that Jesus like sat in a room and put out a poster or put out a call or had a town crier go out and say like, 
tax collectors welcome. You can come here and be like Jesus. He said that to one of them, right? Matthew would follow him. He looked at Matthew and he said, you, buddy, follow me. But even then, he found Matthew where Matthew was, at the tax booth. <laughs> he went out to where he knew tax collectors were, knowing that they were involved in a system that oppressed and hurt the people that he loved the most and was a part of, knowing that these people were often um, outcasts in their community for good reasons as well as bad, right? That they caused a threat to other members of the community. He went out to where they were and said, hey buddy, let's do something. Let's have a dinner. <laughs> and when he sat at dinner in the house, so not his house, because Jesus didn't have one, but presumably Matthew's house, an apostle's house, a follower, someone who lived in this community, many tax collectors and sinners came, right? Because he has functionally, like, demonstrated solidarity. <laughs> He's gone out to where a community is and say, hey, I see you. Do you want to be a part of this thing that I have cooking? And when people say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He is clear who he's for, right? People who are going through it, not people who have it together. <laughs> people who are going through it and not people who have it together. Jesus goes out to where people are, and in the second part of Matthew, 35 to 38, go to the site, right? Go out into the fields, go out into the harvest. You don't sit in the house and say, okay, corn, it's time. <laughs> come to my silo, right? Like, come to me, corn. You go out into the field and you say, like, what's here? What's happening? How do I approach this? Where am I? Um, you have to go out into a world that is full of wonder and majesty and amazingness, a world that God made that has a lot to teach you, that you can be humble to, and be yourself out there. And be in relationship with people out there. Because I think your discipleship will suffer if you don't. Like, how can you be a person of faith if you're not actively putting yourself into relationship with this whole world of wonderful, amazing things? And certainly no one will ever know whether or not it's true that they can be fully seen and fully loved unless you do it in a way that makes sense to them, in a place that matters to them, and don't demand that they accede to you to make it happen. So we're going to be talking a lot throughout June um, about what healthy gospel versions of that look like, right? Because for many, like, it just is really messy and messed up, and it's really easy to reduce people and make them smaller when we think about what evangelism might look like, rather than acknowledge the vastness of human experience and the universe and all the great things that are out there. Um, but I'm glad that we're starting with creating communities. And I'd really encourage you to talk to Juan Pablo about creating communities, because the whole point is don't force anybody, right? Don't tell anybody that they uh, are nothing without you. But also don't demand that they come to Sunday morning just because Sunday morning is what has worked for you. Go to where people are, to the spaces they have created, Acknowledge the truth that God is there because God must be there, and then see what can happen <laughs> and what extraordinary beauty can be made out of it. So we 
in June is a month that we do a lot of going out anyway, right? Um, we go to Pride to be among our folks and to declare what we believe, which is that God is proud of us and made us to be queer in all kinds of ways. We go out to the, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> um, we go out to the Dyke March. We go out to Montrose Beach. We go out to these places um, in order to experience who God is and also in order to say something that we believe is true about what is possible in community without demand. And so think about how you can do that in your life. Is there a way that you can be different or more honest in the places that you are going out to rather than demanding that people follow an invitation? Is there a way that you can be clear and forthright about who you think is included, (laughs) about who you think God stands for, about who you think should or can be involved in community? Something that happens a lot is that people will say to me, "Um, I really like the people at your church. I'm not sure where I stand with God, but I do really need to make friends like sorry about that, and I'll be like, hey, you can join a small group. That would be fine, right? That would would be fine. (laughs) What you need, who you are, is something that we need and something that we will learn from. And how can you be true going out into the world with good news rather than simply resting on the laurels of invitation and welcome, which in the end always centers you because you're asking people to come towards you rather than going out towards what other people are and then be willing to be changed and transformed by it. We're all gonna figure out what that means. We're gonna figure out what that means together. And we're gonna figure out what that means asking God to make us like the first apostles, like Matthew, who went out into places that they had never experienced and were as changed by them as they changed because that's what loving Jesus looks like. The oldest churches in the world is not the Church of Rome, right? The Church of Rome is up there, but the Church of South India and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, (laughs) because that's where Thomas went, and that's where the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip met went, that they went back to places or to places or out to places where people were living and said, who are you and what is happening here and how can we find God and what is happening and what is the good news that we can learn about together? So let's be people like that. Let's go beyond invitation, and let's see God in our lives together. Amen.